previously on the Sports Refuge Podcast. You know, people are probably going to give me a hard time like they always do every time I say something, but I just want us to do better. I know we can do better. From Delaware, almost live, this is the Sports Refuge Podcast. This is the weekly podcast featuring interviews with guests discussing their connection to sports. And now, here's your host, Earl Holland. And it's time for episode 72 of The Sports Refuge, the show where guests share their connection to sports. And as always, I'm your host, Earl Holland. My guest, Steve Wagner, received his doctorate of dental surgery from the University of Maryland School of Dentistry in 2009, and by the age of 30, ran his own practice, Pocomoke Dental. What's more amazing is that his path to becoming a dentist began as a single parent while attending college as an undergraduate at the University of Maryland Eastern Shore. In this episode, I talk with Wagner about what led to his interest in dentistry, what it was like going to college as a young father, and what it's like running his own dental practice. Wagner will also discuss his fandom for the Washington football team, the Baltimore Orioles, and much more. And now, let's begin my interview with Steve Wagner. My guest is a good friend of mine, someone I had the opportunity of meeting at the University of Maryland Eastern Shore. I know it's probably just as big as a diehard Washington Redskins fan and Baltimore Orioles fan as I am. And I know that if you guys listen to the live stream with Matt Lang, that he had a cameo appearance on there in the comments as well. Uh, Steve Wagner, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to be a part of this interview. Thank you for being on. Earl, it's my pleasure, man. It's, it's, I'm glad to be here. One of the first things I wanted to ask you, just jumping right in, I know that you're as big a sports fan as I am, and I know you've been a big Orioles and Redskins fan growing up. What were your first memories of experiences of going to live sporting events? I mean, Redskins games, the Orioles games, and things like that. When I was young, never really went to a Redskins game until I was grown. My first Orioles, I, mean, I remember going to a couple games at Memorial Stadium. And my first game at Camden Yards, the thing that I remember the most is, I think it was, I want to say it was late 96, because Cal had already set the record. You know, he had already set 21-31. And um, he's at the plate, and there's a foul ball, and it comes my way. It's 96, so I'm, I don't know, I'm 13-14. And foul ball comes my way. I reach up, the ball tips the top of my glove and just goes straight up. Mm. It's coming right back down, and this dude literally jumps on top of my mom's head, like knees on her shoulders, Mm. and snatches this ball. And like my brother, who's a lot older than me, he's, um, he's about 20 years older than me, he's like, pushing this guy off my mom because he's literally like sitting on her shoulders trying to get this foul ball i'll never forget that one of my other greatest memories was um i was at umes and uh we i'd done a summer internship at umbc and Mm -hmm. i got lucky enough i had family who had tickets to a game earlier in the season it got rained out got postponed and actually ended up being cal's last game ever Wow. So I got tickets to go to that game. I was also supposed to present my summer research work at a symposium at UMBC that same day. Mm. Me and Dr. Kelly Mack, who I love, (laughs) she did not want me to uh, go to this game because she didn't want me to leave everybody else. She wanted me to ride back in a school van. And I basically told her, I was like, Dr. Mack, like, this is history. Either you can let me 
you know, leave and go with my family to this game or I just won't present to work. So she finally caved, thank goodness. And uh, I got to take a cab from UMBC over to Camden Yards and I got to see Cal's last game. And uh, that was pretty awesome. And the thing I remember most about that game is, uh, and you'll, you'll appreciate this, Earl, uh-huh. two outs in the ninth, right? Nobody's playing for anything, okay? The Orioles are way out of it. Red Sox are maybe going to make a 500 season. Nobody's got any playoff hopes or contentions or anything. And Brady Anderson's at the dish, all right? He watches the first two right down the heart, goes 0-2. Now, remember, Cal's on deck. So there's like 45,000 people who want to see Cal come up and have this last at bat. First two, he goes 0-2, but he swings at two bad pitches to start it off. He proceeds to watch the next ball right down the middle. Umpire calls it ball one. And I'm like, man, that looked like straight. Next pitch, I swear it was a straight. Ball two. Next pitch, I swear it was strike five. <laughs> he still watches it. Goes to a full count. And, I mean, everybody's thinking, okay, it doesn't matter. Like, this pitch could be just about anywhere. Blue's going to call it a ball. He's going to walk. We're all going to get to see Cal hit one more time. And Brady Anderson swings at a pitch about neck high and strikes out and leaves Cal on deck, and he never gets that final at bat. So uh, I'll never forget that. But uh, it's kind of one of the reasons that I hate Brady Anderson. (laughs) It, it's funny you talk about sometimes those calls and you see it go in favor of your team. You're like, that's a strike. But, hey, if you're going to do that, I think they'll gladly take it. But I remember you telling that story, and you always yeah. tell it so lively, especially about Brady Anderson. We're going to yeah. play back up to a full count <laughs> and swinging at the yeah. last strike. I mean, it, it wasn't like one pitch or two. I mean, all straight, all three of them look like strikes. Blue calls three straight balls. And, I mean – like I said, it's a meaningless game. You know, Boston, I think they won that game. They might have went 500 or one game over. We're out of the playoff race by a long shot. And it didn't matter. I mean, the only thing that mattered was just let's get Cal to the plate. Let's see one more time, you know, basically, you know, this guaranteed first ballot Hall of Famer get, you know, take take an A-B. And that jack wagon had to swing at a neck high fastball for straight three. Do you think that, I know it's always been the talk, that 50 home run season, do you think it was steroids? I mean, I always thought it seems like it's one of those statistical flukes that you see in baseball sometimes. And like, you know, Roger Maris never really hit more than 30 home runs other than that season. He hit 61. But I always wonder, and that's been a topic of discussion. I think it was a combination. I really do think he was juicing. But I think he also had one of those fluke kind of Maris seasons. And between the two, I think that's just how he... You know, that's why he just had that monster season. And it's crazy. I I go back to my first Orioles game. That's 95 against the Milwaukee Brewers because I remember it was that season. Ricky Bonus owned the Orioles. They couldn't beat him at all. It's just like he was like Cy Young. They could beat up on Kevin Apier. They could beat up on whoever else, but they could never beat Ricky Bonus. And then, of course, next season they go all out for all the free agency, getting Sir Hoff and... Bordick and Alomar and all those guys. And it's like, it's weird comparing those seasons, 96, 97 to 2012, 2014, and even 2016. It's so different. I I heard a lot of people talking about, you know, those two seasons, 96, 97, it was like, 
we well, yeah, you're cheering for them, but it's like a bunch of mercenaries. It's like a hired mercenaries, hired hands, and things like that. Yeah. But 2012, it's all the homegrown guys. It's Jones, who they they picked up in a shrewd yeah. trade. Marquecas, who yeah. they drafted, and and everybody else, Manny, and and it's like completely different experience. Yeah, exactly. Basically, we got to play the role of the Yankees in '96, '97. You know, we had homegrown uh, Musina, you know, our ace pitching, but. You know, but yeah, the bats were just, I mean, they were bats for hire. But yeah, I, I enjoyed, I think I enjoyed 2014 a lot more. Marquegas and Jones and, and Weeders and just those guys that were home. Jones wasn't homegrown, but I mean, he basically was. We traded for him early in his career before he was a star. And that one was pretty sweet. I can remember when I was in dental school, <laughs> I'll tell you a funny story. The first couple of days of dental school, we're having an orientation. And, you know, you got to take out money for school, but you also got to take out money to live. And, you know, they're telling us, make sure you spend your money wisely. You can't eat extravagantly. You need to live on a budget because all of this money you're going to have to pay back. And I'm going to be honest with you. I, you you know, I'm an Eastern Shore boy, so I, I knew I was coming back. And I said, look, I can walk to Camden Yards in three and a half minutes. I'm never going to have this opportunity. I took that loan money and went and bought season tickets. <laughs> How big of a uh, season ticket pack did you get? Did you get 81 or did you get? I, I didn't go 81, but I bought the first three years I was in school, I bought a 13-game pack. And uh, and I probably went to about 15, 15, 16 games a season. And uh, Bush was awesome. But yeah, I was like, I was like, you know what? It's probably going to cost me in the long run, but I'm never going to get to live this close to Camden Yards again. So, yeah, and the thing is, uh, we we're a season ticket holder. We got 13 game packs. They're honestly not even 300 bucks. 300 bucks yeah. for 13 games. That's really dirt cheap. You know, some other places, maybe Philly, Wa- Washington's ridiculously expensive from what I hear. Uh, even just getting like a, a five pack, but be able to get tickets, especially like I said, being I, so close. I think mine were like maybe about 600 back then, but I was on like, um, I was basically like, like somewhere in the first two or three rows, couple, I think the second and third season, I was on the front row of left field. Okay. So, I mean, I used to go there, you know, they'd let you in a half an hour early cause you're a season ticket holder and sit there and just try to catch home run balls during batting practice. And yeah, it was definitely worth spending that money for sure. We were in the upper bleachers area just because that's like, yeah, we're just going to get the cheap thing. I mean, at the time, we could probably afford a little more, but now we were like, you know, nice spot in the shade. So when the sun hits, we'll be fine on a Sunday. And yeah, yeah, I still think it's the best investment. I mean, I don't know how much of an investment it is, but I know it's money well spent. And I always hear people talk about, how do you guys go to baseball games every week? Honestly, a season ticket pack, even just buying two seats. For 13 games and the, the right to go to playoffs in opening day, still cheaper than buying two NFL tickets. I've done that before, yeah. and they're ridiculous. Yeah, definitely. My gosh, I can remember when I was in school, me and my roommate, we went to a, just a, a Ravens preseason game. It was a Ravens-Redskins game. And I mean, for preseason nosebleed seats, I think we were paying like 75 bucks a ticket. And if you're going to a regular season game, I mean, you're going to pay easily, you know, probably triple digits for a ticket. Yeah, and then, of course, when the Redskins started losing, especially, I remember a couple years ago, Christmas Eve, they were playing the Broncos at FedEx. We waited till the last minute. $45 tickets, first row of the end zone. I mean, actually, maybe the first five rows in the end zone. That quick for 45 bucks. 
Oh, now that's definitely, that's some money right there. Yeah, I mean, something that cheap before the havoc on the Bay Bridge where now it takes you an hour to go what would normally be 10 minutes across the bridge. And then we tried it last year going to the Niners game because the weather was so bad and Bill Callahan decided to run the ball so much. By the time we got there, it was halftime and we were rolling, but the bridge just, everything just stopped. But once we get past the bridge and started rolling on 50, we couldn't find anybody who was taking parking passes or anything or to buy parking passes. So we just parked in the, the main lot for free because at that point, nobody cared. It was raining. Yeah. It was already late in the second quarter. And it was all right. I mean, I will say yeah. this. The one thing I love about Orioles games that the NFL is really messing up on is bringing in backpacks. I mean, I love bringing a backpack, bringing outside food in. And yeah. Being able to get, like I said, I'll hit those vendors outside of Camden Yards, bring it in, or we'll go to the Jimmy John's, get that, and, and we're fine. But then FedEx, you can barely take in a, a see-through book bag. My wife can't take a person, can't take an umbrella in, and the food is ridiculously expensive, which... Oh my gosh, man. And I mean, I don't know how people drink a beer at these games anymore. I mean, you go to a football game and you're looking at like nine bucks a beer. If you throw the guy a dollar a tip, I mean, a $10 beer, man, I mean, I don't want to drink beer that bad. Yeah, I feel like those two sports, when it comes to like their procedures, it's like night and day. I think St. Louis just all of a sudden started their ban on really bringing outside food in and limiting book bags. I know Washington, you can only bring a bottle of water in. I don't even think you can really bring in a book bag. And it's just ridiculous. And I can't understand it. Going to Nats Park, you're going to need more than a bottle of water on a hot day. And I know things are pricey enough as it is there. But that was one of the benefits of Candy Yards. It's like, you know what? Last year, they started doing the things where you can go partial season ticket holder, 15% off every food item, pretty much most of food items are like 80% of them and all you gotta do is flash them the lanyard that's it they'll just take that 15% off so uh, normally a hot dog five bucks about 350 and I can live with that yeah definitely what do you think about this year's Orioles I know it's everything's sort of bizarro world where it's jumbled up and nobody knows what's going on and so many games have been postponed it is, but at the same time, I mean, these guys, they're surprising me. I can't believe how well they're playing. They're hitting the cover off the ball. And the pitching, I mean, Cobbs actually looked like the guy that, you know, we paid all this money to. He looked horrible in these first two seasons. And I don't know if that was just, you know, injury-related or what, but he's looked really good to start the season. So the bullpen's a little shaky when we were up 5-3, and then they got that fourth run. I was a little worried, but, I mean, they hung on, so... I think just because they're a young, hungry team and everybody's just fighting, you know what I mean? Yeah, and I think a lot of these guys, some of these guys are guys who were cut two or three times, even by the Orioles, like Vileka, the shortstop, <laughs> Hanser Alberto, because honestly, I saw like last year in spring training, he got cut by the Orioles three times, got signed by the Giants, got let go, and then they picked him up again, and then he came out of nowhere. And I always wonder if it's just sort of these guys are just finally getting the opportunity to play because they've been cut so many times and never got a shot, yeah. or if Michael Elias and them are actually scouting talent or they're developing talent. I mean, again, a lot of these guys, when the team starts getting better in, I assume, three years, might not be here long term, but... I always think of comparing this season, even though there's still plenty of time to go, to the 89 season where the year after they started 0-21, they were within two games of winning the division, and and then they regressed a couple of years, and then once they moved to the new stadium, they were pretty solid for 92, 93, 94, and 95, they didn't have the right manager, 96, 97, 98 for pretty much most of that, and that's when it all fell apart, but and you think about those early 90s teams, Devereaux, Brady, Cal. Uh, Palmero later on, Hoyles, mm-hmm. 
Jeffrey Hammonds, Messina, McDonald. I, I mean, the names go on and on, but I just think about if this is the start to long-term success, even though these guys might be just placeholders, I'd be all for it. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if Hanser will be around when we kind of get to our peak, you know, when these guys finally mature. But, I mean, God, all that guy does is hit, man. I mean, you just wonder, like, why didn't he get a shot sooner or what clicked, you know, for him to turn it on like that. But, I mean, guys like Santander, I mean, I could see him, you know, hanging around. I know Iglesias is a stopgap, but even a guy like Iglesias, he don't really have much to prove because, I mean, he's kind of been in the league and made his money, but he's balling. So, what do you say? I always keep thinking that, okay, now that they're in the process of rebuilding, a couple years down the road, they're ready to contend. Manny Machado opts out in San Diego because he's got, I think, two more years before he can decide to start opting out. Mm -hmm. Do you think, hey, bring him back and play third and a link to the previous winning teams? And he's still fairly young. He'll probably be 30 by the time he he even thinks about opting out because it's going to get at least one or two more big contracts. Yeah, I don't know, man. I don't think that'll happen. I think that if he opts out, I don't think that Baltimore is going to be his destination. One, it's going to take a lot of money if he opts out because he's going to be looking for even more money than he's making now. I like Elias's plan of drafting these bats and getting this talent, the core talent on the field, and then maybe spending your money on arms. You know, I kind of like that strategy. I think that's a good way to go. I mean, that's kind of wishful thinking. I mean, it'd be kind of nice, but I don't see Manny coming back to us. Yeah, it would be nice, and I think maybe it doesn't make any sense. I feel like on his way out, the fans were starting to turn on him a little, and he he didn't really help himself sort of loafing off a little bit. Maybe that, and I can't blame that on the leadership on the team because he had solid vets there pretty much kept him in line. Yeah, well, two things there, too, Earl. I mean, one... I was a little upset with Manny because I think obviously he kind of forced Buck's hand to play shortstop. And I think all it did was just kind of prove that, hey, you're a lot better third baseman than you are shortstop. So I didn't really like that because this guy's like the second Brooks over there at third. And then you put him at short and it's like, yeah, he'll make some good plays here and there, but he's just a better third baseman than he is shortstop. He went to San Diego and I mean, he's playing third. I think the other thing is too, it's no secret he wants to play in New York. So uh, I think if he opts out and there's an opportunity there, I mean, it wasn't really an opportunity when he signed because you had DD and you had that really good lineup that they've got in New York coming up. So he didn't really have the opportunity to go there. Maybe they weren't willing to give him what he wanted like San Diego was, but Yeah, I mean, I think if he opts out, I think he's always going to probably want to play there. And I think him signing with the Padres, the best two things happen. One, it's out of sight, out of mind. He's not going to haunt you for years in the division, and he's not wearing pinstripes. And I can live with it. I don't care if he went to St. Louis or Houston. Well, I guess Houston would be a, a different thing to talk about now. But if he went to the Rangers or something like that, you know what? That's fine. You don't have to see him all the time. He'll come back every now and then. That's great, but... Hey, I'm not going to lie. I mean, he might fit in in Houston with some of those dirty moves that he made with the Dodgers during that playoff run. So, I mean, he might fit in right there. And speaking of Houston, man, I mean, dude, I'm loving these teams who are throwing at Correa and Altuve and the John, the dude from the A's that got suspended. I love it, man. I think the Astros deserve every time they get thrown at, heckled, booed, whatever. I think they deserve all of it because you can't tell me that that trash can gate or whatever, you know, you can't tell me it didn't have an effect. 
And this will probably keep going on for another year. Once they start letting fans back in, the booing is probably going to be oh, even yeah. worse. And I can only imagine unless the stadiums right now are starting to do the, the automated booing like they do with all the crowd <laughs> noises, which uh, I can understand. It sounds a little weird, but I was watching the Phillies-Orioles game and starting to see the cutouts in the stadium and those levels in the outfield fence. They're pretty cool. I know what Rio Ruiz hit one of the cutouts in the head in center field on his home run. And I couldn't help but laugh. I guess people are having fun with it as much as you can. It's like, you know, Andrew McCutcheon giving the cardboard cutout of kids the ball. It is pretty funny to make the best of a bad situation. Yeah. I know one thing we've been talking about, and I know you, we mentioned you being a Redskins fan and going to your first Redskins game as an adult. The name change and everything that's been going on has been a big issue among fans. And I know it's even led to some fans sort of reevaluating whether they should be fans of this team. And I know it's a really uh, a big issue. And I know the thing is that I know everybody talking about Dan Snyder uh, bowing down the PC pressure. I don't know is that. I think it was more in the money. He's always been about the money, which is the biggest thing. He sued people whose husbands have died and they can't pay the tickets anymore and sued them and other people who lost their jobs. And I, I can't say it's a PC thing. He saw the green and when he saw all those sponsors starting to uh, back off, that's what really made him change his mind. Absolutely, man. I mean... Look, he could care less about the PC side of it. He wouldn't have changed it right now. But when you've got corporations like FedEx and Pepsi and Nike, I mean, that's $3 billion companies. He can't withstand that. I don't like it at all. I mean, I, I just think that it's it's a hokey thing, like a lot of things that are going on right now. But I completely understand why he decided that he had to do it because I don't think he has much choice. I definitely saw before the name change them moving away from the George Preston Marshall heritage and story. I mean, that was a big deal. Renaming the section for Bobby Mitchell and stuff that should have been long done, especially the fact the way he was disrespected during the Spuria era with the giving Leonard Stevens his number 49. It was... It was, you know, people who weren't worthy of those numbers wearing those. Because everybody will blow a gasket now if somebody even talks about wearing 21. I can imagine that's... Or 28 right now. I think if anybody decided they want to wear Daryl Green's number, every Redskins fan would be upset. That's D. Green. I don't even know the process of them retiring those numbers like that. But, I mean, I can't see 28 and not think D. Green. I can't see 81 and not think Art Monk. He won't be retired, but I can't see 84 and not think Gary Clark. Or 44. And not think John Riggins. I mean, you just, there's just, that's just how it is. I mean, if you've been a Redskins fan forever, I mean, those, you can't help but think of those names when you see those numbers. What did you think about the Ron Rivera hiring? I know initially everybody's saying, oh, great, another retread coach. But honestly, looking at Gruden and comparing him to Gruden, it's like night and day. And Gruden was so ill-prepared. He didn't seem like he was just sort of there. He was the only one that could handle the madness of that front office. But he just seemed like he was ill-prepared, didn't know what he was doing. And the one big plus they said about Gruden was, oh, he's a great talent evaluator. The problem is the training staff was so horrible, you had to be able to evaluate talent because everybody was hurt. Right. Well, and now you got all the things coming out about him, you know, the drugs and I, I don't know, you know, the prostitutes or whatever that were going on. You know, I think that guy's just got a whole lot going on. It sounds like he had so much other things going on that, and I don't know if, if it was like that when he got there, or maybe he just, it was such a, I don't know what you want to call it, it was just such a mess that he just kind of got led astray and did that stuff. But, but 
I like the Rivera hire. I think Rivera did a great job in Carolina. I mean, the last couple of years has not been so great, but led them to a Super Bowl. But I think it's a good hire. I, I like the Rivera hire. I mean, I think the problem is definitely not going to be with Rivera. It's going to be in the front office. I heard Kurt Schilling say this one time. You know, he said, when you have a franchise, and this kind of goes for Baltimore and Washington, both the O's and the Skins. When you have a franchise that is historically bad for a long period of time, you know, for 25 plus years, there's only two things that don't change during that span of time. And one is the fan base and one is the ownership. So, and the fan base, what effect do we have on the play that's going on on the field? Not much. I mean, we can support the team. That's about it. But so, I mean, in my view, it's it's definitely on the front office and I'm not going to say Dan Snyder hasn't tried. I mean, my gosh, he's certainly been willing to spend money in the past, but I think he also just kind of needs to get out of the way and uh, find somebody who can run that front office a little better. And the funny thing is I always hear, you know, Dan Snyder made all this money. I always think when you see some of his business practices, you wonder how did he make this money? How did he keep it? He's like the anti-Mark Cuban. I think Mark Cuban made his money in communications and, and internet stuff. Dan Snyder did the same thing. But Mark Cuban seems... Pretty transparent, fan-centric. They both have their issues with front office uh, people creating a toxic environment. They're pretty much uh, polar opposites. You see him on Shark Tank. You see all this other stuff. Dan Snyder doesn't like being in front of TV unless it was with George Michael, somebody who would either coax him to be a front and center face. And it's funny, the same thing with the Orioles. The Orioles were trying to win. They were spending money. And I think the funny thing is the Angelos family, that's been the most consistent ownership they've had really since the beer company owned them in like in the 60s and 70s because they went with uh, Edward Bennett Williams, who I think Edward Bennett Williams, the only person who has a Redskins and an Orioles uh, championship ring. And then he died and Eli Jacobs bought it. Then he went broke. Then Angelos won the team in an auction. Beat out Jeffrey Loria for the Orioles. Could you imagine what would have happened the other hand if Jeffrey Loria ran the Orioles? Maybe there's two rings. Maybe it's a disaster. Maybe we have Derek Jeter running the Orioles. (laughs) Well, I mean, that's possible. I I could see that happening. But let's go back to 2014. You got as far as you did and... You just look at Duquette. You don't bring back Marcakis, who's homegrown talent, and look what he's done in Atlanta since. You don't bring back Nelson Cruz after he has a monster season. I mean, he didn't do anything but go to Seattle and basically hit 300 with 40 homers four years in a row. You don't bring back Andrew Miller. And I thought, okay, well, maybe Andrew Miller is a money issue, but Miller signs for four years, $36 million, and then they turn around and sign O'Day to four years, $32 million. It's basically the same contract. We're talking a million a year. And obviously Miller was way more dominant than O'Day was. So I look at that and I think, man, if you would just brought back those three people that you had, I really don't see why you don't have a shot to go right back to the ALCS and maybe get to the World Series. Yeah, and I feel like that the downfall of the Orioles from 2014 on was it's a combination. It was a few things. I think Buck outsmarting himself a few times because what happened with Britain oh. – and Don't apparently, get me started. I know. And the funny thing is, I was watching a replay of the 95 Mariners Yankees where he ended up going with Jack McDowell instead of Wetland in the bullpen. And the Mariners scored those three runs and saved baseball in Seattle. But that was the first sign. And I think when you have a coach who's the face of the organization, which ties back into the Ron Rivera thing, it's going to be great for a while until it isn't. And 
I started seeing once Duquette was flirting with the Blue Jays, Angelos just basically handed the reins to Buck. And then this is how we're, what, year five with Chris Davis right now? And when the owner supersedes the GM and signs a player... That's the worst thing that could happen. Even Dan Snyder doesn't do that. He'll open the checkbook. He'll have Redskins 1 fly to wherever it needs to go. But, you know, Bruce Allen or McLuhan or Charlie Casserly, those guys were the ones making the deals. Two things. Can you ever remember a guy who got hot at the most right time to cash in on a deal like Davis did? Uh, Maybe Barry Zito, but he wasn't disastrous. Yeah, I mean, he wasn't bad as Chris Davis. I mean, you you think about those three seasons he had. He hit more home runs in those three seasons than he's hit the last five seasons and probably two or three before those three. The guy just literally hit, what, I think 133 dingers in a three-season stretch. And he hasn't hit a, 133 in the last six or seven combined. It all kind of fell at the right time. And, oh, the other thing I was going to say is do not get me started I love Buck, but I hate Buck (laughs) because he did a lot for us. He turned us around. He really turned us into a good organization. But when he didn't bring in Britain in Toronto in that wild card game, I just couldn't believe it. Britain was lights out. He gave up four runs the entire season. He's sitting on a .47 ERA. You know, you got a man on first and third. The only way you're getting out of that inning is if you get a ground ball. And you got the best closer in baseball who's got like an 88% ground ball percentage. The only way you were getting out of that, he could have came in, thrown one pitch, got a ground ball double play, and and he had done it earlier in the season. He could have that wouldn't have been his only inning. He could have come back out for the eleventh. He probably could have come back out for the twelfth because he had gone multiple innings, you know, during the season before, earlier in the season and proven that he could do it and get outs. And I'm telling you, man, and when Jimenez came out of the bullpen, I'm just sitting there on my living room floor. And thank goodness my children were in the house because I couldn't yell and scream like I wanted to. I had to be quiet. But I'm screaming on the inside going, what is going on, man? And I'm at work and uh, me and one of our photographers who's an also an Orioles fan. And we're just like, why is he not bringing Britain in? And here's the thing. If Britain gives up the home run, you know what? You did what you could. I got no problem, dude, if if Britain comes in. But I think he gave up like one homer the entire season, and that hadn't been since like May or something. Now, I'm not saying they couldn't have got a base hit or, or maybe they can't turn two and they score a run by only getting the fielder's choice, but there's no way. If you bring in that guy and you get beat, okay, you got beat. But when you bring in Ubaldo, oh, man, I think that loss has stung worse than just about any loss I can think And for me as an Oriole fan. And I think reevaluating, looking at 2014, I still wonder why Buck didn't use Miguel Gonzalez at all when he hadn't really used him at all until maybe like game four when he was pretty healthy unless he was hurt. And Buck was pretty daft with a lot of his moves. Sometimes he wouldn't mention who was hurt, so just not to give the opponent an advantage, but... Miguel Gonzalez hadn't pitched for almost like eight days and he was fresh and he went with Brian Mattis more than he went with an extra starter unless he was hurt that sort of made me scratch my head and I know that some of those balls like the ball that got past Marquez on the triple that O'Day pitched you know what that happens it happens but I feel like he might have outsmarted himself. He might have been the way some people or the way Peter Angelo saw Johnny Oates was where he would put the pressure on himself too much Buck might have just outsmarted himself thinking that you can see it sometimes that he might feel like he might be the smartest guy in the room, and then 
In those cases, it backfires. I mean, the only other manager I think has had less luck winning a World Series is Dusty. And those are two guys with a big, big Hall of Fame record who are missing rings. Yeah, you're right. I mean, and well, like you said, if you lose with your best guys, you don't feel so bad about it. But when you take this flyer on, whether it's Miguel or whether it's Ubaldo or, or whoever, man, then you're just sitting there scratching your head thinking, you know, like, what if? But if you lose with your best guys, okay, you, you know, so you don't win them all, you know, that's fine. But but it's it's hard to swallow, especially that Britain one is just, it stings. Because that dude was just, I mean, he gave us four runs that season. And literally, I think three of those were in May, in like one outing. So, I mean, from like mid to late May, he gave up literally one run the rest of the entire season. I mean, the dude was just about unhittable. What would you say? Who's a better manager, Davey Johnson or Buck? (sighs) You know, honestly, I think Buck is the better manager. And I think... It's hard to say. I mean, but Davey had all those hired guns, man. He had established talent that came in there. And I mean, we were nothing when Buck came on board instantly. Like, I think he took over like mid-season, like maybe like August, sometime like that. And I mean, we started winning games immediately as soon as he came in the clubhouse. He turned us around pretty quick and... And I'm not going to say we didn't have superstar guys. I mean, we had Mark Hickus, We had Jones. We had a young Manny Machado. But, I mean, he turned those guys – I mean, he turned us around pretty quick where you didn't have basically Hall of Famers. You didn't have Alomars and Palmeros and Ripkins and guys who just, you know, have all this, you know, cred and, and uh, experience and things like that. Yeah, and I think, yeah, like you mentioned, those 90s teams – there's at least six Hall of Famers on those teams. Of course, Palmero should be in, and that's a whole different story because there's probably at least a couple of steroid guys in already that nobody knows. And What's your take on that? You know what I mean? Like, there's just some guys. I blame baseball. You know what I mean? They know it was going on. They didn't want to police it, but now all of a sudden these Hall of Fame writers want to police it. Do any of us think that Barry Bonds wouldn't have been a Hall of Famer? Does anybody think Roger Clemens wouldn't have been a Hall of Famer? Palmero, I mean, Palmero, I think he hit 37 or more home runs in like, what, seven or eight straight seasons. I mean, that's like, I think there's only like one other person that's even done anything like that. I just think that that was the time there was a lot of people doing it. And me, I'm glad they're policing it now. So if you get caught now, okay, I'm all for it. But those guys would have been Hall of Famers. A-Rod too, he would have been a Hall of Famer. I'm not a real A-Rod fan, but I mean, I still think he's a Hall of Fame talent. I think it was a better shortstop than Jeter because I felt A-Rod was more of the Ripken mold, a power-hitting, big shortstop, better defender than Jeter. The fact that Jeter won some gold gloves when everybody says his defense was poor, that's like Palmero winning the gold glove when he played 100 games at DH, which is another (laughs) issue by writers. If these are the same guys that are policing things and regulating who should go in the Hall of Fame, you guys allowed one who was a DH in most season win a gold glove and a guy who's not good defensively, and I mean, whatever you use sabermetrics, they all said his defense was inferior compared to A-Rod's. Mm-hmm. I agree with that I'm wholeheartedly. Are you big on the sabermetric style, the advanced stuff? I know that's a lot of stuff to take in, and I know I think about it, it's like I'm not a math guy. I just look at sabermetrics to me are good. I don't look at all the other stuff like war. I look at on base. I look on OPS. I look at uh, whip. Everything else is sort of arbitrary and, and circumstance-based like, uh, like RBIs because you could be a guy who could hit 30 home runs, drive in 80 because nobody got on the base in front of you. Okay, so I'm mostly uh... – 
Up until about a season or two ago, I'm definitely a more of an old school stat guy. I care about an average. I care about on-base percentage. But I have a cousin of mine who is a sabermetric fanatic. For every old school stat, he can give me two sabermetric uh, stats. So I'm starting to come around a little bit. I'm starting to see the validity of some of those statistics. I'm still not sure about some of them. I don't even understand like the the formulas, like of how they're calculated. And I'm like, who even thought to create this formula? You know what I mean? It's like somebody sat around and they looked at all these stats and and I guess they said, okay, I'm going to use this formula. And this stat is, is a stat that will cause a player to help a team win. I don't know. It's hard to wrap my head around it. I'm about halfway through a, a book on sabermetrics, but I don't know. I'm kind of in between. I, I think that they do have a useful purpose because, I mean, if you look at them, they, they kind of correlate well with players helping teams win. But I'm still a little bit old school at heart. It's it's kind of hard to get away from those stats. But you got to say that now it's like a guy like Hanser, you look at that batting average, you can't take that away from him, even though he might not have all these other stats. But now, I mean, you look at these guys, I mean, if you can bat 260, 270, but you can hit 35, 40 homers out of ballpark, you know, you're going to make more money than that guy who would have been a, a 300 hitter with a 400 on base. The game's just kind of changed. Everybody's just leaning towards those stats more, it seems like to me. Yeah, and I feel like they all have a, a particular role. Like you said, the 300 guy with 400 on base, that's the, probably your leadoff guy, your number two guy. Then the guy right. that hits the 275 with the 30 homer, that's maybe your three, four, or five guys. I always heard the lineup, and I know it's not always a prototype, like – not everybody's going to be Ricky Henderson or Brady Anderson and or Paul Molitor where they're going to be speedy and get on base and hit with power and things like that. Sometimes you can have slow guys, but if they can get on 40% of the time on base, I'll take a guy who maybe hits maybe 250, but he's got, as I say, dum-dum strength and it's going to hit the ball out of the park. I mean, everybody has a particular role. I'll give you an example of that. And, you know, it's one of our favorite players is Nick Markakis. He's not a speed guy. I mean, he's not even going to steal 20 bases a year, but he's not even going to hit 300. You know, he's going to bat 290. But the guy's got such a good eye that he's still going to have a 380 to 400 on base percentage. And, I mean, I don't know if you remember, but, I mean, he was used in that leadoff role some for us. And, I mean, he did a good job because he was setting the table. Yeah. Me and my cousin have this debate about protection in a lineup. My cousin doesn't believe protection in a lineup, but I believe this. You put somebody who gets on, even if they're not a base-stealing threat, the fact that there's somebody on, that applies the pressure to a pitcher, and then whoever's hitting there, it benefits them. And then the person behind that, speed only adds an even bigger part of that. People who don't say there's such thing as protection, look at Jeff Kent. Jeff Kent was sort of a an all-right second baseman, but you put him behind Barry Bonds, they have no choice but to pitch to you. I mean, Matt Williams was dangerous too, but Matt Williams was scary wherever he went. From San Francisco to Cleveland to Arizona, he was always a power bat. So I think that's the difference between Jeff Kennan and Matt Williams that even if you have Barry Bonds, you know, and even then Matt Williams was doing it when Will Clark was hitting in front of him. Exactly. He had Will Clark in San Francisco. You're right. One of the things I want to ask you, being from Princess Anne, Maryland, you went to the University of Maryland Eastern Shore. What led to your decision to go to UMES, especially attending school in your backyard? A couple of things. It was close to home, which was appealing for me just because I didn't have to go away from home. I had a girlfriend at the time, so that was appealing that I was going to get to stay close to her. I was lucky enough to get accepted into the scholars program, which meant I wasn't going to have to pay for school. I had a full ride. 
So I'd say the fact that I had the full ride, plus I got to stay home at the same time, those were probably the two biggest decisions that made me want to choose UMES. And I'm really glad that I did. Actually, my oldest son, he's 19, and he's actually in the honors program at UMES. He's starting his sophomore year this year. But I'm really glad that I did because I got to have a mentor like Jackie Thomas, who I think is an awesome guy. I can't thank him enough for giving me the opportunity to go there. And I wouldn't trade anything in the world for the friendships with you and Matt. I wouldn't trade that for anything in the world, man. It was something that I'm glad that I got to do. And it's funny you mentioned Brandon. I think, man, he was so little. When I first met you, he was like, you just barely born, I think. And now yeah, he's like well, a sophomore. You only have this crazy. Yeah, Brandon was born the end of my freshman year. So, yeah, by the time I graduated, he would have only been three. He was a little guy. But, yeah, man, time flies, man. He's a sophomore at UMS right now. It's crazy. I agree to say, being a father so early, I mean, how did that change you, especially trying to balance being an honor student, having a son, and things like that? It makes you grow up a lot faster because you've got this responsibility that you've never had before. I had a lot of things that made me grow up a lot faster. My dad was disabled, so, you know, I'm putting in 17, 18 credit hours a semester. I'm probably spending 15 to 20 hours taking care of my dad because he's in assisted living. I'm a tutor on campus working 20 hours a week, you know, tutoring in, in micro and genetics and, and some of the lower level math classes and then trying to be a dad to a little guy at home. And uh, so, I mean, you really don't have a choice. You know, you can either grow up real fast <laughs> or not. But um, well, that was kind of a lot for, you know, a 19, 20, 21-year-old. But, you know, I wouldn't change it for anything in the world, man. I, that little boy that you remember turned me into a man. So I, I credit him with pretty much the person I am today. Um, the reason I went to dental school, that's because of him. You know, I think the dad that I am to my two younger sons now, I'm probably, I joke with him a lot. I'm like, you know, I'm a, I'm a lot more mellow and laid back and and I'm a lot easier on them, but it's because I was hard on him because he was my guinea pig. I was learning how to be dad. <laughs> and it's interesting. Like I said, we see people we would probably go to school with, especially freshman year. And it's like, man, these people maybe are out on their own for the first time, don't know what to do with themselves, don't have a parent behind them. And then sometimes you see them wilt under the pressure or just sometimes people party too much. And then they're here today, gone tomorrow. And it's just crazy. Yep. Because I remember a couple of friends of mine who, who didn't get honors, they were in pace and they just said, look to your left, look to your right. Most of these people will not graduate with you. And even out of that group, a few graduated and a few, while not graduating from UMS, still got their degrees somewhere else and have careers. It's still interesting just to see that whole process. You know that uh, we've definitely seen um, a few come through that, uh, <laughs> that uh, let's just say they weren't college material and, and you kind of knew it when you met them, but um, you got to grow up somewhere, I guess. And I remember as I was talking to Matt and I was actually editing the interview with Matt and he was just talking about how you guys met, especially during honors weekend, Dr. Thomas brought you guys up and doing the academic team and things like that. And your senior year, you were still balancing all that other stuff. 
and you were coming out to practice nearly every night and you were really close to making the spot to the traveling team because it was pretty fierce competition at that time there was like at least eight or nine people vying for basically five spots it was that was probably the one thing that i wish that i had maybe committed myself to a little bit more early on like you know probably especially second and third year i wish i'd committed myself to the academic team a little bit more because that was good times i I had a lot of fun and uh i wish i committed myself probably that to a little bit more but it was tough you know like i said i had a lot of things going on had to take care of my dad had my son at home and and trying to balance everything and trying to get through school too because i mean look even just getting through school is not an easy thing to do so yeah and it's weird and i always just think about because i changed my major after my freshman year from computer science to English, and I, I knew I was going to lose the scholarship anyway, the, the AMP scholarship, and I'm like, you know what, if I'm going to continue going on the I'm going to go on my own pace, I'm going to do what I want, and then I switched to English, and then all of a sudden I started thriving, and I think, man, maybe if I did that freshman year, I would have probably had a scholarship going all the way through it, because I slept walk through those final years like with a 3.3 major average, and I finished like 3.1 overall, and it's crazy because I think of my first semester, I still withdrew from a class, had an F, still finished 2.7. And that's just because, you know, everything else, but because I had a tough science class and I was never a big fan of science. And then I withdrew from like the, the computer science, I think. And I just needed something else to sort of turn me along. And I think getting the English major was probably the biggest thing I needed to do. I mean, definitely because you've got to be in something that's going to engage you. Everybody has to find... And not just in college, but just in life general, you have to find what you're good at. I think everybody's probably good at something, but you have to find what you're good at. And that's what you excelled at. I can remember, you know, you doing communications and being on the radio and things like that. I mean, that that was your thing, man. That's what you were made for. And I was glad that, that you know, you finally found that track to get on because you just got to find what you're good at. Yeah, I know you had to be surprised when you heard me on Country Radio Station. You heard me on Cat Country one night calling. <laughs> oh, yeah, man. I was so excited. I'm sitting there, and I'm just driving in my truck, and, and I hear this voice, and I'm like, I know that voice. That is Earl. So I had to drop you a text message. I was like, I was like, dude, I'm, here. I'm listening to you on the radio, man. This is awesome. Yeah, and it, it's crazy. And I always think about this, that when I tell people I worked in country radio, and, you know, there's always a little sort of like, how did you get into that? And I'm like, you know, it was a job, and it was a nice job, and it was extra pizza and beer money, especially because, you know, as college students, it's not like you can really do much while dealing with classes. I always feel like I picked up a lot of a decent amount of country songs. I know a lot of it was sort of as it was trending toward the more modern stuff, but I always think my four or five songs I take from my time at Cat Country. I think Size Matters by Joe Nichols, Mountain Music by Alabama, Billy's Got His Beer Goggles On by Neil McCoy. Oh, man, I think there's a few others, but but those are the three that stick out in my head, and I remember them. They're like on my iPod playlist still. I, I still listen to them. I have no shame in country music, and, you know, I feel like it doesn't hurt to be diverse. You're the only person I know, black or white, that probably knows the real names of every member of NWA. Oh, yeah, I mean, it was funny. You know, when I grew up, I'm going to tell you, I tell everybody this at work, I always had a really wide range of music. Like when I was 10 years old, do you know who my two favorite artists were? Garth Brooks and Michael Jackson. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty far apart, you know what I mean? And uh, yeah, I think I can name them all off. I mean, Andre Young, O'Shea Jackson, Eric Wright. Um, I don't remember what Doc or Yella's name was. Um, and I 
don't think I remember MC Ren's real name, but um, I can remember my sister had that cassette tape, and I just found it one day and started listening to it. And I mean, I stole that thing. I stole that tape. I listened to it all the time. My mom and my sister had no idea. I listened listened to that album all the time. But that's how it was, man. I can remember. I'll, I'll tell you a couple funny stories before I forget it. The Joe Nichols. Okay. He's one of my favorites. Went to see him in Wilmington with my wife, Kelly. And he was either sick or drunk because he had absolutely no voice. <laughs> he couldn't hit anything over mid-range, no high notes at all. And what was the second one? Oh, Alabama's the second one. Okay, so I bought tickets to see them in November of 2019. The lead singer has cluster headaches. They postponed it. Supposed to be seeing them in October of 2020. Now COVID's here. Now it's been rescheduled for July of 2021. So, and it's at the Civic Center in Salisbury. So I don't know, maybe I'll get to see them in my lifetime. I mean, unless Randy Owens catches COVID or something, I don't know. I might not get to see them. But those are my two stories about those two groups that you mentioned. I can remember um, when I was in middle school, I mean, I thought I was, I mean, I still listen to country music because my parents did, but I mean, I can sing probably word for word to Snoop's Doggy Style album. (laughs) (laughs) The Chronic, I mean, I pretty much same thing word for word on that album. Um, I can remember me and my buddy uh, Seth in high school driving around. And I mean, we had that Tupac Greatest Hits album just like on repeat senior year. I mean, that's all we did was just listen to it. So definitely very wide, diverse range of, of music for me. And I bet it helped that Matt was a big Tupac fan. Yeah, it definitely did. You know, I don't know what it was. I just think, um, you know, me and Matt, we met at that honors weekend, that homecoming weekend, you know, and uh, we just hit it off, man. And um, uh, I don't know. That's a smart dude, too. I will tell you that. He's a very intelligent cat. And, um, you know, he's also a damn good basketball player. If if he wasn't so damn short, (laughs) he probably would have been on a basketball scholarship instead of an academic scholarship. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. We just hit it off, and that was it from there, man. Yeah, I think about the time we all three played basketball at Tall's because yeah. I remember I was supposed to have a remote for when I was working at Clear Channel, and I completely forgot. <laughs> we're in the gym and ball. I'm like, yeah, you know what? I think I got enough time. We can play some ball. <laughs> we were all right. I'm definitely not an offensive threat. I'm like, you know what? I'll find somebody. I'll distribute it. I'm not a point guard. I'll just pass it, find you guys for wide open, and that's how it worked. But, I mean, that's the one thing. It's like, I'm definitely... I remember that time we were all playing ball at Tall's Gym because I know it was one of the Saturdays that you actually had off because you didn't have that much time on the weekends. 9 a.m. in the morning or something, we all went out there. It was pretty fun. And it's like, as soon as you mentioned that, I'm like, it, it just popped into my head. We were starting to talk about dental school. What led to your decision to become a dentist? I kind of always knew that I wanted to do something in healthcare and just kind of wasn't sure what and observed my dentist when I was in high school and I had two great dentists as a kid. I was never afraid to go to the dentist. They were two awesome guys, um, Marvin Talls and Bruce Ramsey. And so as I went on, you know, I thought about changing my major when Brandon was born because I knew I was going to have to go away. But I just decided it was going to be better for me and for him in the long run and stuck it out. And, you know, I thought about medicine, but I'll be honest, I'm a softy, you know, when it comes to things. And I mean, I have a hard time telling people they're going to lose a tooth. So it would be really hard for me to tell them they're going to lose a family member. So I decided dentistry was probably going to be better for me because I wasn't going to be able to handle my patients not making it on me. So I decided to go to dental route and um, 
you know, did my four years at, at UMES. And then um, my dad passed away my senior year. And so that was a little rough. I didn't apply to dental school straight out of college. I took a year off and went and worked as a dental assistant at the local community health center there in Princess Anne. And after being a dental assistant, I was like, yeah, this is definitely what I want to do. So during that year, I applied to dental school and ended up getting in that following summer and, and then went to Baltimore for four years. What is the most common misconception people have about dentists and things like that? I always think of, of course, in popular culture, there's always either going to be Dr. Giggles or Steve Martin from Little Shop of Horrors, where everybody's going to think, you know, these guys get off on inflicting pain and stuff like that. I think that's probably the biggest misconception is dentistry nowadays. I won't say it's completely painless, but it's for the most part, pretty painless. Of course, I can remember a guy that I went to dental school with. This dude's dad was a dentist, and I guess he was just comfortable. But this guy, he would walk in the door, and he just didn't have a care in the world. He was a cocky guy, and he'd be like, all right, guys, who are going to hurt today? <laughs> and, I'm, <laughs> and I'm like, no, that's not why we're here. We're not trying to hurt anybody. But, you know, I mean, I do a lot of things in my office to try and give the most really pain-free kind of gentle dentistry we can do. I've got a lot of devices. I mean, I use heated anesthesia and I use vibration technology with a tool that I have that's called Dental Vibe and a lot of things that, you know, make getting an injection literally almost painless. And then once you got the injection, you're numb and you really don't feel anything from there. So I think it's definitely changed. I, I can't tell you. I mean, I've had hundreds, if not thousands of people, you know, sit in my chair and after we give them an injection and they're like, all right, so when do I get the needle? And I'm like, you already got it. It's done. We're just going to give it time to soak in and then we'll get started. But I think that's probably the biggest misconception. People are just, they're scared. And I can't tell you how many people that once we get done, I'm like, so what'd you think? You know, was it as bad as you thought it was going to be? And no way. I mean, 99 out of 100. Yeah, no, it's not near as bad as they thought it was going to be. So dentistry's come a long way, man. Dentistry has evolved so much. I've been out of school for 11 years and it's changed so much just in that period of time. I can't even tell you how it's growing. Is owning your own practice eventually something you aspire to do? I actually do. I spent two years in community health, and then I worked one year as an associate. And so in October of 2011, I actually bought my own practice. I've been the owner of that practice nine years. And um, so, yeah, I knew that I wanted to get there. I really enjoyed community health when I came out of school. Especially because, you know, it was three lower counties at the time. It's just speak health. But that was my backyard. It was in Princess Anne. You know, that's where I grew up. That's where I went to high school. It's where I went to college. I was really kind of invested in putting my time to that. And unfortunately, it didn't kind of work out the way I wanted it to there. But I found the dentist who was close to home, who was on the verge of retiring. And I went and worked with him for a while and then, you know, had my own practice. So what were some of the growing pains, uh, I guess, transitioning to taking over your own practice and things like that? The hardest thing is the business side of it, because they teach you in dental school how to do dentistry and the clinical part. They don't teach you a thing about the business side of it, the taxes. They don't teach you about having to deal with employees, <laughs> you know, and um, I was really lucky that I inherited a really awesome staff and I've had a few of those staff. I had one staff member who passed away last year. She was my dental assistant for the first 10 years of my career. Her name was Lisa, and uh, I miss her every day because she was kind of like my big sister. But I've been lucky, man. I inherited a great staff. I've hired a few employees along the way. And like right now, my staff is just 
phenomenal. I mean, I always like going to work, but now at this place in my life, I don't just like going to work. I look forward to it because my staff, it's like a family atmosphere. It's like a family setting. And and I care for each one of my staff members. And uh, I kind of had to learn how to be a good boss, too. I mean, I'm not a mean guy. I mean, you know that. But it was just kind of different because it's hard to know how to be a good boss until you kind of figure it out. You kind of got to learn it for yourself. And uh, right now, I mean, my staff is phenomenal. They are the reason that I love going to work every day. My hygienists are awesome. My front desk awesome. My assistant is fantastic. So, And I think about one of my previous guests. He's in charge of the business end of his wife's practice when his wife was trying to buy a practice in Michigan. And he just said she took care of the staffing and things like that. He just took care of the money and just helped and all that other stuff. And that was an interesting process just hearing from him. It's like, you know, they had to put in new procedures and things like that, try to train people to certain specifics and standards they wanted them to. And if they couldn't handle it sometimes, the hard decision of having to make those changes in staffing was a tough part of it. It is. I mean, I've been fortunate and I think I've in 10 years, I think I've had to, to let go like two employees. But I mean, like I said, for the most part, I've had just phenomenal staff. Matter of fact, I've actually been in implant training to learn how to place my own implants for the last six weeks. And me and my assistant, actually, we're going to put in about a half a day tomorrow and then we're going to get on the road and uh, shout out to Katie. And we're going to get on the road and we're going across the bridge to uh, Fulton, Maryland, and we're going to have a live surgery on Saturday. And that'll pretty much complete this first implant training course. That's about it's been about 46 hours of continuing education. But yeah, man, I mean, the staff will make or break you, man, because I mean, I like I said, I look forward to seeing the people that I work with every day. They're literally like family members. We had a cookout a couple of weeks ago at my hygienist's house and. I mean, we had a great time. Everybody's just hanging out, just literally like family. And I keep forgetting, and I work in a medical publishing company, and you always learn, doctors are continuously learning, and they're always continuously being educated. And it's something that it's not like once you get your degree and, and this and that. No, there's continual learning, and, and it never stops. That's something that they talk about from day one in school. There's guys who don't do it, but you, to, to, I think to be a good dentist, you're really a good medical professional. You have to be a lifelong learner because medicine and science is constantly changing. And, you know, you got to stay on top of it or you will get left behind, really. Like I said, some people are bound to drizzle if they don't <laughs> if they don't try to keep up. Jesus. I was great. <laughs> I was about to ask you, we were talking about country music people. Would we consider Lionel Richie a country artist it's something different like Darius Rucker who is definitely in that spectrum but Lionel Richie would he be considered a country artist even though he's had a couple of country hits yeah I don't know that I would really consider Lionel Richie a country artist would you I mean I would probably consider him more of like an R&B artist yeah I think of that and I think you know of course and I always think of what lady that he did with Kenny Rogers and I always think about that and and I always even think of what but, the Commodore Sail on is more of a country song than is an R&B song. It is. But if you remember, so Kenny Rogers did have a country career, but he also had a pop career. So you could almost say that that was, I don't know, maybe you could classify that as a pop song, um, you know, and not so much as a country song. And it's interesting now how a lot of music sort of crosses over. And I, I started and again, working at different stations and I noticed how most of the modern pop the country song starting to sound a little more popish, more R and B. It's like with some of the stuff I always think of what BB Rexa and Florida was it Florida Georgia Line and BB Rexa? 
Uh, uh-huh. And I think yep. about that. That sounds a little more like an R&B song, a 90s R&B song, than a country song. And it's just, you know, I think everything's sort of meshing together, which some people will say it's a bad thing. Some people will say, you know, it's a good thing. But who am I to judge? I listen to a lot of music. but I mean, I do, too. I'm like you. I don't really know that it's a bad thing. I mean, there's definitely some songs that I might hear on country radio that I don't really think of as country music, but doesn't mean they're bad songs. I might think of them more of as a pop song, but like I said, I mean, one of my favorite artists of all time, you know, Michael Jackson, I mean, the King of Pop. I mean, just a matter of fact, I'll tell you a few weeks ago, there was a serious XM radio had a uh, limited time Michael Jackson channel. And we had that thing on for like three or four days at the office because I like Michael Jackson. I can pretty much those first four or five solo albums. I can pretty much sing you every song on them. And uh, so, you know, yeah, they might sound popish but doesn't mean it's not good i know i was about to ask you about michael jackson albums i was having this discussion with a few friends before i'm like you know what everybody's gonna probably crucify me for this but i think that off the wall is better than thriller but that's just my personal preference (sighs) off the wall better than thriller i mean dangerous can definitely be up there and bad maybe but i mean to me it's off the wall i tell you what i mean not that i don't like bad and dangerous well dangerous is what got me started Because, I mean, I was, what was I, probably like nine, maybe, when Dangerous came out. And, I mean, I listened to that CD so many times that I can remember going to, like, Sam Goody's in the mall. And I was like, I like this CD so much that I just went back and bought all the other ones. I bought Bad. And, like, the next weekend I bought Thriller. And the next weekend I bought Off the Wall. And I just, you know, just to kind of keep, you know, it was like they were old albums, but they were new albums to me. Because I was learning that music for the first time. And I definitely like Off the Wall and Thriller more now that I'm older than bad and dangerous, I don't know. It's tough, man, because I love working day and night. I love off the wall. I love rock with you. Um, but I also love the girl is mine, you know, PYT, human nature. I mean, that's tough, man. I would be really torn. I could go either way. <laughs> I always said that if it was say, 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 instead of the girl is mine on Thriller, that's a completely different album. And I would put that ahead of off the wall. But, I mean, yeah. that's my preference because I feel like The Girl's Mine is too slow. And you already have Lady in My Life on there. And that's probably a better song, especially a better way to end the album. But, of course, Carousel started popping up lately. So I think that's a good, stealthy one that was left off. But apparently uh, someone had this link to this unreleased album called Hot Street. And it's a lot of good stuff, a lot of good Michael Jackson stuff that it was like 45 minutes. And okay. Yeah, Hot Street. And then I know a few people made some remixes of Bad, Despicable Me. Think. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like nine minutes long, but it, it's worth every bit of it. I got you. I'm going to have to check that out. I'm going to have to get you to send me that link so I can check that out. I tell you, man, I love, man, The Girl Is Mine. That's a big one for me. I don't know. I just love them two playing off of each other. And now I wasn't really a big Beatles fan back when I was younger. But my assistant, my late assistant, Lisa, that I was telling you about, she was a huge Beatles fan. And she got me kind of listening to them a little bit. And, uh, man, the more I listen to their stuff, the more I realize, man, these guys are way ahead of their time. And some really good music there, too. And I'm not anti-Beatles. It's just sort of like, to me, it's like, yeah, their song's all right. Like, when I think of my favorite Beatles song, it's Earth, Wind, and Fire's version of God to Get You Into My Life. That's probably my favorite version of a Beatles song. You can only hear yesterday, but only so many times before you're like, yeah, I'm all right. Yeah, I mean, some of them you've heard just so many times. Yeah, I know what you mean. See, I really appreciate it. As we wrap this up, what is the best way people can reach out to you if you want to give a plug to your practice hey i'm all for it what is the best way people can reach out to you if i don't know if you're big on social media i always feel like with all my friends who are in the millennial age group we apparently the upper 30s 
don't do social media as much or Twitter or stuff like that? Yeah, I mean, I'm on most social media. I mean, I do Facebook, I do uh, Instagram, I do Twitter, I do Snapchat. Those are kind of the four that I kind of mess around with a little bit. Not a whole lot. I'm, I'm not a huge social media guy, but I'm on all four of those and I check them fairly consistently in my practice. I mean, if you're in the area and you need something, I mean, we'll help you out. We're kind of slammed because we've had nine in the last two years. I think there's been nine dental practices that have closed in our area between Chrisfield, Princess Anne, Pocomoke, Snow Hill, and the Eastern Shore of Virginia. So we've been really kind of slammed. And then, of course, COVID didn't help that at all. You know, we had to send our hygienist home for 10 weeks. So that kind of backed us up to my website is pocomokedental.com. It's pretty easy to remember. So yeah, and whatever they want to reach out to me can always just get in contact with you and you can hit me up too. Being able to reconnect with Steve after a long time was really great. And we'll have him on the show again in the near future. Next time, as part of a birthday-themed episode, Meredith Esguero returns to the podcast with a reading of both my natal chart and my solar return chart. I'll also test her sports trivia knowledge as well. Episodes of The Sports Refuge can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the iHeartRadio app, and plenty of other places where podcasts can be heard. Don't forget to check out The Sports Refuge website as well as The Sports Refuge's YouTube channel, where we've uploaded some new videos, including our previous ones involving our NFL playoff preview. Until next time, this is Earl Holland saying thanks for listening and have a good one. You've been listening to the Sports Refuge Podcast. For more information about our show and our guests, go to our website at thesportsrefuge.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Sports Refuge, on Instagram at Sports Refuge Sports Blog, and on Facebook at The Sports Refuge Sports Blog. Thank you for listening.